Good morning, church. Welcome, everyone. It's good to be here together. I just want to take a moment before we start today and just offer uh, my gratitude to our wonderful student ministry and youth leaders who spent a weekend with an entire weekend with all of our 7th through 12th grade students last week. And so I just want to give them a round of applause and say, amen, thank you. Like, that is super brave of you to do that. Um, and I know some of them are your own kids, and that makes you even braver uh, to, <laughs> to spend a weekend like that. And it looked like they were having a great time, uh, the kids, and it seemed like the adult leaders were as well. And I'm just so grateful uh, for the time and the investment of all of our ministry leaders here at CNBC. You all do a wonderful job uh, ministering not just to our youth, but it's so exciting Wednesday night to walk in this building and to see so many people here invested in the life of young people, both here in our church and in our community. Many of the children that participate in our WANA ministries, they don't necessarily attend church here on Sunday morning. And so we have so many volunteers, so many families just giving of themselves, investing their time and energy, leaders with Bible quizzing, uh, VBS volunteers in the summer. And um, thank you. I just want to say thank you for allowing yourselves uh, to be used of God in such a powerful manner. And I also want to say this. Though you might not be able to see it today, it makes a difference. It really does. It makes a difference. There is kingdom influence and kingdom impact in those investments that years and years and years from now will come to fruit. And we may not always be able to see the winds. Uh, sometimes they may feel kind of foreign from us. But just know your time, your investment, your ministry, it's making a difference. So we have one more final Sunday together with our memory verse for this month. And it's from the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 2. And uh, we could say it together today. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob... God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Exodus 2, 24 and 25. And thank you. It's uh, been a joy to have the last number of weeks uh, to participate in memorizing that verse together. And we'll have a new one for us all uh, next month as we step into February already, which is hard to believe. Now, you may have noticed that we have kind of stuck on this title for the beginning of our series, the last number of weeks, and it's been with intention because God's deliverance of his people, it takes time. It's long. God is going to deliver his people, but it's not going to happen just like that. And we're, so we've studied for the last four weeks together the process or how God is bringing all of the pieces together in order to accomplish his purpose and his plan. Now there's a storm coming on Egypt, and that's what we're going to step into today. But I don't know about you, uh, storms are so much more fun to watch and to observe and to even maybe participate in when we're indoors and we're safe, right? Uh, I remember in particular one year, uh, we, this is before we, we lived in the development we live in now. We were living in another place in Quarryville, and there was this massive storm that was coming through. Powerful winds, really powerful. And I remember I was sitting in a chair in the living room, and I was looking out. We had this big window that looked out into our backyard, and we had gotten the children a trampoline. And the trampoline was in the backyard, and it had a few stakes holding it down, and I think like a bag of sand or something on one of the legs. And this storm was violent. There was wind, there was thunder, there was lightning, there was rain. And I'm sitting on the chair, and all of a sudden, I see the trampoline lift up and begin to spin like a UFO <laughs> in the backyard and just go. It, it was gone. And it actually ended up in a hedge of bushes uh, to the left of our house, stuck in the hedge of bushes. Um, and I remember the next day having to go out there and figure out how I was going to... <laughs> get the trampoline out of the hedge of bushes, and then we had to get bigger, stronger stakes to hold it down. But we were much safer, and it was much more enjoyable to see that storm inside than if we would have been outside. In a similar fashion, there's an account from Jesus' life when he's out in the middle of 
this lake with his disciples in a boat and a storm comes. And it's storming everywhere around the boat. And there's chaos. There's water. There's thunder. There's lightning. Jesus knows he's safe. In fact, Jesus so much was, was so knowledgeable and so comfortable in the reality that he was safe that he was doing what? He's sleeping in the boat. Now his disciples, they, they were not feeling extremely safe. They were nervous. They were worried. Lord, what are you going to do? Do something. But he knew he was safe. He knew he was protected. He knew he was where the Lord wanted him to be. Even though there was chaos and difficult things happening all around him. The disciples were in the boat with Jesus. They were safe. Jesus was safe. Moses and Aaron. Moses and Aaron. They have been called to do a super difficult thing. God is going to work through them and use them to free his people from Egypt. But before he does... There is going to be, essentially, ten incredibly significant and powerful storms that come upon the Egyptians and the Egyptian people. But Moses and Aaron, they're safe. They're where the Lord wants them. They're walking with God. And you know, we will find that in the storms that we go through in our lives. If we're doing what God has called us to, and we're living as God has called us to live, in Christ, we are safe, no matter what may come. So we have these plagues that we're going to step into today as we continue working through the book of Exodus, and there's this big idea that is foundational to this plague portion of the Exodus narrative. It's this, that Yahweh is Lord. The one true living God, he's above all powers, he's above all principalities, all rulers of this world, and he will deliver his people from oppression so that they may worship and serve him alone. And as we enter our text today, we're going to find that God will accomplish this completely. And he's going to do it by utterly unsettling and disrupting not only the Pharaoh, but also the lives of the very people that the Pharaoh ruled over. God, in his power, would make Pharaoh and the other gods of Egypt out to be very incapable deities. And we're going to see that as we work through each of the plagues. Each of the plagues was a direct assault on a group of Egyptian gods, lowercase g, or goddesses, and the Pharaoh himself. But there were purposes for these plagues. As we step in today, we're going to look at the first six. And one of the purposes was that God would demonstrate his judgment for sin and injustice. What the Pharaoh was doing, what the Egyptian leaders, what they were doing, holding the Hebrew people in slavery, in captivity, that was sin. It was injustice, and it needed to be judged. The second primary purpose is that God would display his power, his power over Pharaoh, but also over the Egyptian gods. And then finally, that God would wholly and completely deliver his people from Egypt. So we ask ourselves a question of the text today as we step back into the sands of ancient Egypt. In the action of setting his people free, how does God demonstrate his miraculous power and unfailing love? If you want to take your devices or your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 7, we're in chapter 7 today, and we're working through chapter 7, 14, all the way through 9, 14, as we look at the first six plagues that God brings upon Egypt. Before we read from God's word, let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit. To help our time of study. Holy Spirit, we indeed are thankful that we can gather around a book that is so powerful, a book that is living, a book that you use to shape us and to form us into the image of Jesus. And what a powerful image to be formed into. 
Lord, through the study of your word as we gather around it in community, you're alive, you're active, you're working. And so, Lord, we just ask that as we step into the text and as we see the way that God our Father was freeing and delivering his people from their Egyptian captivity, we just pray that it would be evidence of his power that's still at work today and his unfailing love. And that we see he loves his people and he's faithful to preserve, to protect them through history. We give you glory for this time of study. We pray that you would use it to change us so that we might make a difference, a difference for Jesus in the places that you put us in our communities. In Jesus' name, amen. Exodus 7, we're going to read verses 14 to 19 to begin. Exodus 7, 14 to 19. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. And take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far, you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die. The Nile will stink. The Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff, stretch it out, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals, their ponds, all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and the vessels of stone. Blood everywhere. God is greater. Pharaoh's heart is hard. It's hardened. And God is about to strike at the very heart of Pharaoh's peace and prosperity. You see the Nile River. This was no joke to Egyptian people. This event, these plagues, they're taking part, many scholars believe, in the northern part of the Egyptian kingdom in a place called Zone. We read about it in Psalms. You can see it on the screen. And there's an image of where this, these events are believed to have taken place. You can see that little white marker on the screen. And if you want to kind of place it to where Israel's located, as you're sitting on your far right, you see the raisin, the rope, and the peanut. Uh, and that's Israel's eventual land there. Where the plagues are believed to have taken place is in San Al-Hagar in Egypt. This is happening. And it's hard for us to overstate how significant the Nile River was to the life and prosperity of the Egyptian people. In fact, it was so significant that they even had written a hymn of worship to the Nile, the lyrics of which were found in some ancient archaeological digs in the Middle East. This is an excerpt from Hymn to the Nile, uh, written in what was believed to be about circa 2100 B.C. A place of worship, a place of life, of sustenance, of economic prosperity, of military security, the health and the well-being of the people, all part of what the Nile provided. But judgment is dawning on Pharaoh's unbelief and disobedience. It's interesting, you notice the use of the word strike. Strike the water. And that word strike becomes prominent throughout the book of Exodus. In chapter 2 of Exodus, you remember Moses struck and killed a man who had beaten the Hebrew slave. In chapter 3, God tells Moses that he will strike Egypt with all of his wonders. 
In chapter 5, the Egyptian taskmasters are striking the Hebrew foreman. And the people are crying out to Pharaoh who has struck them for not keeping up with their quota of bricks. Now Moses will use a rod of Aaron and the Nile River will be struck. Soon, as we'll see later today, they'll strike the dust. Then the hail is going to strike the land. Finally, the death, the death of the firstborn, will strike the people of Egypt. And later, Moses will strike a rock. Once in obedience and twice in a lack of faith. And those final two strikes, those would be the strikes that would keep Moses from ever entering the land of promise. Over and over and over again through the narrative, we see this word strike being used. Back in chapter 7, Aaron will strike the Nile and all the water in Egypt will become his blood. It will become useless, bitter. The water, the source of agricultural life, not able to be used. The water that served as transportation, now stained. Filled with death. The water that gave life and identity to a people, to a nation. Lifeless. The goal? Look at verse 17. This is what the Lord has said. By this you will know what? I am the Lord. I am the Lord. It's an action that communicates that Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, is sovereign over the natural sources of life and prosperity in Pharaoh's territory. Verse 21 tells us that even the fish died. The fish, a major source of food to the Egyptian and even the Hebrew people who were held captive, they died. Imagine the disruption of life. Imagine if you woke up tomorrow and the place you go to every single morning that you can trust and count on for a source of clean water is gone. Would that disrupt your life? This is a major disruption of life. We need water in our house just to keep, keep boys from stinking too much. A lot of them. I can't imagine. I can't even begin to unpack what this may have done to the people of Egypt. How absolutely unsettling, disruptive, and disturbing this must have been to them. Surely, at this point, Pharaoh has seen enough of God's power to let the people go free and worship God in the wilderness. Surely, right? I mean... How much more could happen? Verse 22. But the magicians of Egypt did the same. They did the same by their secret arts. And so Pharaoh's heart remained hard. And he refused to listen to Moses and Aaron. Just as the Lord had predicted. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house. He did not pay attention to this. All the Egyptians dug around the Nile for water to drink because they could not drink the water of the Nile. There's so much irony in these plagues. It was Pharaoh who had put the Hebrew people to hard labor labor to collect straw and to make bricks. And it was Yahweh who would now put the Egyptian people to hard labor now left digging desperately around the Nile just to find a source of usable water. Pharaoh was not going to change. He was obstinate. He's ignorant. He's prideful. And God is not finished. I hate frogs. Oh, this one really gets me. I have frogs. They're just... They're just there. And I'm sorry, hate's a strong word. Dislike. 
for those frog lovers out there. This one's tough for me. Seven full days have passed since the water's become blood. There is an odor and a stench throughout the land. Look at chapter 8, or in some of your Bibles it may say chapter 7, verse 26. We're going to start there. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and tell him, this is what the Lord has said. Release my people in order that they may serve me. But if you refuse to release them, then I'm going to plague all your territory with frogs. The Nile will swarm with frogs. And if that was not enough, they will come up and go into your house into your bedroom, onto your bed. God's very specific. <laughs> into the houses of your servants and your people, into your ovens, yum, <laughs> and your kneading troughs. Frogs will come up against you. Frogs will come up against you. Could you imagine what that looked like? Your people and all of your servants. Now it's interesting. I just, for one day, I would have loved to just be in Moses and Aaron's shoes <laughs> and just be like, you're going to do what? <laughs> really? <laughs> and through us? Wow. They're all in. Moses and Aaron at this point are all in. They've just watched what God did with the water. Now he's going to do this with the frogs. There's no looking back. He had sent Moses and Aaron. Moses and Aaron earlier on had kind of demonstrated that their obedience was a little reluctant. But now they're walking by faith. They're believing. Daryl said it well last week up here. He said Pharaoh had no idea that the two most dangerous people in his kingdom were standing immediately in his presence. It was Pharaoh who thought that he had the power he thought that he had the power to control and manipulate what would come in and what would go out of his land. See, he thought he had the power. But in the plague of the frogs, what God was showing him is that it's Yahweh who controls what goes in and comes out of Pharaoh's territory. He is sovereign over all of Egyptian inhabitants, even down to the frogs. And again, Pharaoh calls upon his magicians or his sorcerers. And verse 7 tells us that once again, they're able to replicate this miracle. They're invoking their dark and secret arts, and they are able to bring frogs upon the land of Egypt. And I think that a testimony to us in this, friends, is if we don't think that there are powerful forces that exist in this world, that they're not able to be accessed by people, the work of these magicians should probably reform our thinking. They're able to do this by some dark, secret power. Yet, it is also true that whatever they're using, the dark arts or secrets that they're replicating these miracles with, they're actually serving to prolong and make worse their people's own suffering. They're working against their people and trying to replicate these miracles that God is doing. They're adding fuel to the fire of resistance that already is in Pharaoh's heart. If his magicians were able to bring forth frogs... Okay, maybe they're as powerful as Yahweh. But you know, it's interesting. They could bring frogs forth, but by verse 8, we realize that they were wholly unable to make those same frogs go away. Couldn't make them disappear. And in a touch of irony, another touch of irony... Pharaoh now finds himself wanting an exodus, just not one of the Hebrew people. He wants the frogs gone, out of his land. They're a nuisance to him. Verse 8, 
Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Pray to the Lord that he may take the frogs away from me and my people. And I will release the people that they may sacrifice to the Lord. Verse 9, Moses said to Pharaoh, You may have the honor over me. When shall I pray for you, your servants and your people, for the frogs to be removed from you and your houses so that they will be left only in the Nile? He said, Tomorrow. And Moses said, It will be as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs will depart from you, your houses, your servants, and your people. They will only be left in the Nile. Then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord because of the frogs that he had brought on Pharaoh. Could you imagine that prayer? Oh, Lord, these frogs! I've never prayed to the Lord like that. Maybe some of you have for mosquitoes or something else. I don't know. But the Lord did as Moses asked. The frogs died. They died in the houses, the villages, the fields. The Egyptians, notice it's the Egyptians again. The Egyptians were digging for water around the Nile to try to find water to drink. Now what are they doing? Now what does the Lord have the Egyptians doing? They're stacking up dead frogs. Not a real fun job. I don't think I'd like it. But they're the ones now piling in countless heaps dead frogs. And it says in verse 14, the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart, did not listen to them, just as the Lord had predicted. Stench. Stench. It's another interesting concept, just like striking, the word striking, stench is another interesting adjective in this part of the Exodus narrative. In chapter 5, you remember, Pharaoh actually saw the Hebrew people as a stench. Then, Pharaoh discovers that God has the power to cause all the water in his land to have a stench. And now there's decaying piles of frogs laying all over the place, countlessly, and Pharaoh is discovering that God has the power to cause his entire land, his whole country, to have a stench. And by God's mercy alone, Pharaoh finds relief from the frogs, but not from his own hardened heart. And once again, with a hard heart, the Pharaoh opposes God just as God knew he would. And once again, God is prepared with an answer that would reflect his power. Look at verse 16 of chapter 8. Verse 16 of chapter 8. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, extend your staff and strike the dust of the ground, and it will become gnats throughout all the land of Egypt. They did so. Aaron extended his hand with the staff. He struck the dust of the ground, and it became gnats on people and animals. All the dust of the ground became gnats throughout all the lands of Egypt. And when the magicians attempted to bring forth gnats by their secret arts, they could not. So there were gnats on people and on animals. And the magician said to Pharaoh, it's the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart remained hard, and he did not listen to them, just as the Lord had predicted. The gnats become the first of the miracles, the first of the plagues that the magicians could not replicate. And perhaps Pharaoh, for the first time, is realizing that he was up against a God far more powerful than he could possibly imagine. Now, scholars have debated about why the magicians uh, were not able to bring forth gnats. And one of the reasons that I find compelling is because it was actually the creation of life. And God would not allow the magicians to have the power to create life from dust. Only God would be able to do that. And the finger of God. It's an interesting anthropomorphism that's used by the magicians. An anthropomorphism is a figure of speech that we used that attempts to describe God by giving him human characteristics. Big word, simple meaning. 
The phrase, finger of God, wraps back around in the Exodus narrative when we find that God's reforming His people in the wilderness by giving them a law. A law that He will inscribe into stone tablets with what the Bible describes as the finger of God. But for Pharaoh, it's not his finger, but it's his own heart that's keeping his people in peril. And his example, friends, throughout this text, it really is a warning for, for many of us who find ourselves in positions of influence, our leadership. When our hearts are hard, it's often the people that we serve who suffer the most. This is Pharaoh. Hard heart. And because of it, his people are suffering. Not just him. His people. First the gnats. But then, biting flies. The announcement of the fourth plague, it parallels the announcement of the first plague. Pharaoh has this habit of going out in the morning to the water. Maybe to wash up, maybe to find some peace and quiet. But for Pharaoh, there would be no peace and quiet. These two men are quickly becoming his greatest nemesis. And they're back again. Now think about it. Imagine how Pharaoh feels when he sees Moses and Aaron. You know those people in your life when you see them, you try to go the other way? How can you see me? I can't imagine. Pharaoh, part of his morning routine, he goes out to the waters of the Nile. And there are Moses and Aaron. <laughs> Got a message for you. They begin to call out the Lord's words again. Verse 20, chapter 8. Release my people that they may serve me. If you do not release my people, then I am going to send swarms of flies on you and on your servants and your people and in your houses. The houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies and even the ground they stand on. Now these are not just the annoying flies like the black flies that fly around that you know we catch on the strips and all that. These are biting, we call these horse flies in America. These are flies that bring pain. Flies that were made to devour, to bite. Flies that would not be very fun to have everywhere in your house. God, again, states his purpose. Look at verse 22. But on that day, I will mark off the land of Goshen. Now, this is interesting. First time we see this. I will mark off the land of Goshen where my people are staying so that no swarms of flies will be there. That you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of this land. I will put a division between my people and your people. This sign will take place tomorrow. That you will know I am the Lord. That you will see division between your people and my people. You see, the Pharaoh thought in his land, under his rule, in his authority, that he controlled life. That he could direct life and have it do as he, as he pleased for it to do within his kingdom. And in the plagues of the gnats and the flies, we see that it's Yahweh alone who's able to bring forth life from dust. And it's Yahweh alone who can order and direct the life that he brings forth to do as he pleases. And Pharaoh thought that his power and his presence would be enough to protect and sustain his people from consequence and the judgment of God. But he's learning. I don't know if he's learning, but he's finding out. That Yahweh alone is able to completely protect and sustain his people, even in Pharaoh's land, from the consequence and effect of his judgments. What a beautiful thing that God does here. Preserving his own people from the experience of this horrible plague. The flies come, they come in 
The Bible describes them a thick cloud. Everything throughout Egypt is ruined because of them. Their biting's disruptive. Their presence destructive. They're able to easily spread disease and sickness among the people. And if we thought that the water was a disruption and the frogs were a disruption, the gnats and the flies, this is horrible. And Pharaoh comes to this place in verse 25 to 32 where he actually says, pray, to, says to Moses and Aaron, how ironic, pray for me. Yeah. I can't imagine that he was getting a lot of happy thoughts from his people, from his leaders. I can't imagine there wasn't fear. There wasn't anxiety and worry throughout his kingdom. Pharaoh's invitation in verse 25 is a setup. He says he's going to allow the people to go into sacrifice and in worship Yahweh within his land. However, the method and the style of the people's sacrifice would have been an offense or an abomination to the Egyptian gods, which would have only further incited violence against the Hebrew people from the Egyptians. He says, why don't you just go in our land, not outside, why don't you just go someplace in Egypt, and you can have your time in Egypt and sacrifice. Now that all sounds well and good, but Moses and Aaron that if they were to do that, the way that God had called them to sacrifice would have been offensive to the point of further persecution on the people because the Egyptians held the animals that were going to be sacrificed by the Hebrews as deities. They were deities to them. So the Hebrews would have been sacrificing, killing animals that the Egyptian people would have recognized and viewed as gods. So Moses tells Pharaoh in verses 26 and 27 that this simply won't work. The people need to go on a three-day journey into the wilderness. And in verse 28, when Pharaoh says that he will finally release the people to sacrifice, he asks Moses and Aaron to pray for him. Maybe now, Pharaoh's finally accepted that Yahweh is far too much for him to handle. And before the people are released, or are going to be released, Moses prays for God to remove the flies. And when God does, as Moses asked, Pharaoh once again does what? Hardens his heart. This is outrageous. And decides not to release his people. Can I tell you, as I was studying this, one of the thoughts that kept coming to my mind is how patient God is in his judgment. He's so much more patient than me. And he's giving Pharaoh chance after chance after chance to do the right thing. And Pharaoh continues to lie. He continues to tell Moses and Aaron one thing and then do the exact opposite. God in his mercy is going to give Pharaoh yet another opportunity to repent, to release the Hebrew people. But it's going to take another plague coming into the land. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and tell him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has said. Release my people that they may serve me. For if you refuse to release them and continue holding them, then the hand of the Lord, first it was the finger of God, now it's the hand of the Lord, will surely bring a very terrible plague on your livestock in the field, on the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord, again, will distinguish between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, and nothing will die of all the Israelites have. And in this play, God is he's completely disrupting and disordering the entire Egyptian religious system with this plague. He's showing every worshipped object within the country would be diseased and utterly defiled. He's bringing plagues upon the Pharaoh and the country of Egypt. He's devastating the images of the gods of the Egyptians. 
Pharaoh and his magicians, they would have no power to cure these diseases, to stop the death of the livestock. And along with their entire religious establishment, finding itself in shambles, all of the Egyptian economy would be thrown into tumult. What hasn't been touched yet by these plagues? Everything. 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 It's God alone who holds absolute authority, power over disease and death. And once again in this plague, a separation of the people. Why the Egyptians suffered the loss of their food and economy, the Hebrews' people's livestock were spared from disease and death. There's one more plague that we'll cover today. And this one parallels the third plague of the gnats in that it comes with no warning from Moses or Aaron to Pharaoh. It's simply the next plague. And this is going to be the first plague where the people are literally, physically afflicted. Look at verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the furnace and have Moses throw it into the air while Pharaoh is watching. It will become fine dust over the whole land of Egypt and will cause boils to break out and what? Fester. Fuck. On both people and animals in the land of Egypt. This is hard. So they took soot from a furnace, stood before Pharaoh. Moses threw it into the air, and it caused festering boils to break out on both people and animals. The skin swelled, boiled, pus. We won't go into a lot of detail. This is tough. Irony, again, in the affliction of their enslavement, the Hebrews were forced to use furnaces to cook bricks for the Egyptians. And the next plague afflicts the Egyptians with blistering skin boils coming from the soot of perhaps those very same furnaces. Only God has absolute sovereignty over the physical well-being of his people. Moses and Aaron, they take the the soot, they toss it into the wind. And this time, it's amazing, because not only don't the magicians have power to replicate it, but what? They themselves get the boils. They themselves are now afflicted and verse 11 tells us that the pain of their affliction was so terrible that they were unable to even stand before moses and aaron it's not like a blister that we get our fingers or hands after a hard day's work this is something that comes with so much pain that was even caused them to be unable to stand And if you jump down to verse 14 of chapter 9, for the third time now, God is going to again reveal a purpose for these plagues. Look at verse 14. For this time I will send all my plagues on your very self and on your servants and on your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. This was the reason. Pharaoh thought, all these gods, Re, Isis, Osiris, Sanu, Sekhmet, of all of these gods, one of them got to be on par with this Yahweh. There was countless, countless gods. Scholars still haven't discovered all the gods of ancient Near Eastern Egypt and their culture. It was very polytheistic. 
Surely one of Pharaoh's gods, if not Pharaoh himself, would be on par. And over and over and over, God wants him to know there is no one like me. The one true living God. Powerful over all. That same God is alive and active today. That same God is the one true God who is still powerful over all. I like to, when I go through a narrative in the Bible, I like to try to place myself in the narrative. Asking the question, how would I respond? How would I act? There's two parties here, really, that I think we can glean some lessons from as we exit our text today. On one hand, we have Pharaoh and his magicians. And it's interesting. Why do the plagues come upon Egypt in the first place? To show God's power. To show that God is able to deliver his people. But ultimately, Pharaoh is afraid. From the very beginning of the text, from Exodus chapter 1, Pharaoh is afraid. What's he afraid of? That the Hebrew people will do what? That they'll become so populated, and there'll be so many of them, that they'll completely overrun the Egyptian people and take over the land. He's afraid of the people he's trying to control. Pharaoh's fear motivates him to try even harder, to oppress them even more. He increases the hardship of their slavery. He does terrible things to them and has other people do terrible things to the Hebrew people. I think on Pharaoh and the magician's side, the lesson is when fear leads us towards patterns of or attempts to control, manipulate, enslave, or oppress others, we might find that the very thing that we fear will start to oppress, enslave, manipulate, and control us. Sometimes the things that we fear consume us in ways that are not good. Because in our consuming or being consumed by our fear, we begin to think that we somehow need to control the situation with our own hands, in our own way. And we forget that we serve a God who's in control. Who's got the timing, the patterns of what's taking place in His hands. That He's got it. We sing it as kids. He's got the whole world in His hands. But as we grow up as adults, And life happens. It gets harder and harder to believe it and to live like it. But it's no less true. It's no less true today than when it was when we sang it when we were four or five or six years old in Sunday school. Perfect love cast out. And we've been shown perfect love in the person of Jesus. So we have No need to fear what man can do to us. No need. He's got the whole world in his hands. Me. You. He's got this. Do not fear. We don't have to. The remedy for fear is to keep our focus on God. Not what we fear. To set our minds, to set our eyes, to set our hearts on Jesus, on the things above. And to trust and obey that He will do exactly what He has promised. Because He is faithful. Now the second population in the text that that I see, I think we can glean some examples from, are Moses and Aaron. They're becoming an example to us as well. And at this point in the narrative, we're beginning to see their steady and faithful obedience. They are working hand in glove with the Lord and executing His orders as He gives them. 
The resistance that we saw from Moses earlier in the narrative has been transformed by God. It seems to be a thing of the past, at least for now. It'll come back. We go through peaks and valleys in our spiritual growth. And a lesson begins to crystallize for us. Even living in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation where we are as aliens and sojourners wandering in the wilderness of this world, as we remain available with a ready heart, waiting, listening, and then acting as God instructs, God will be faithful and true to work in and through us to accomplish his purposes in the world, helping us shine as light and have effect as salt in the spaces that he has planted us. Church, we got to believe it's God who makes us effective. Amen? We can't be effective by ourselves. It's God who causes us to shine. It's God who makes us have effect. And in the act of setting his people free, God demonstrates his miraculous power in delivering righteous justice on those who have persisted in sin and unbelief. God is going to judge sin and wickedness in the world. He is. One of his roles. He's going to do it. But he also demonstrates his unfailing love. And he demonstrates his unfailing love in choosing to use broken vessels like Moses, like Aaron, through whom he works his wonders in a way that would lead to the freedom of his people, people who had found themselves under the yoke of bondage and oppression. And again, friends, I would say the same God is with us today, revealed in Jesus. And there is no greater thing in this world that we could know than knowing Jesus. Amen? There's no greater thing. No greater thing in this world that we could know than knowing Jesus. The power of his resurrection, the posture in his sufferings, and the eternally overflowing abundance of the life he offers. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your power. We look at these texts today, at these plagues, and what a marvelous demonstration of your power. It's amazing what you're able to do. We stand in awe and wonder of who you are. And even in the midst of it, Lord, we see so plainly that you're using your people. You're using Moses. You're using Aaron to be part of this deliverance. You could do it by yourself. We know that. But you love us. You invite us in. And then you use us. And that's marvelous. And we'll probably spend the rest of our days here in this land trying to figure out what that all means and what it looks like. Oh, but we look forward to that day when we'll step into your presence and we'll truly know what freedom is. We'll truly know what deliverance is. And perhaps for the first time, we'll recognize the depths and the riches of your love and your mercy and your goodness. You bear with us, Lord, through so much silliness here on earth. You are so gracious and merciful. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.